1: It's the Mike Missanelli Podcast on the Bet Rivers Network.
0: Good afternoon, everybody, and welcome to the Mike Missanelli Podcast, brought to us by Bet Rivers Podcast, episode number 30. Yes, it's a round number, number 30, and we're doing it on Tuesday, December 6th. Now, it's a big show today. A little later, we'll talk to former NFL quarterback, current NFL analyst for years uh, on CBS, and now doing the Blitz on Sirius XM Radio. Uh, Philly native Rich Gannon joins us a little later. Uh, but first, uh, it's the big signing. Yeah, we did the podcast on Monday. This thing broke a little later in the day. The Phillies signed Trey Turner, 11 years, $300 million. Now, listen, I don't want to pat myself on the back, but I was saying last year before the season even ended, that this would be the perfect signing for the Phillies. They could move Bryce and stop the second base. And I predicted it was going to happen because there's, you have a feel for certain things, right? And what you knew about Trey Turner? It made too much sense. He wanted to come back East. He's a Florida guy, but his wife is from Flemington, New Jersey. He's BFFs with Bryce Harper. The wives are BFFs and he got $300 million in 11 years. So, um, Here's the beauty of this whole thing. When when people hear, oh, my God, 11 years, $300 million, that's too much money. I I always wonder why fans care about the money that teams spend. Who gives a rat's behind if they go over a luxury tax threshold? I certainly don't. Maybe your tickets get a little higher. I get that. But if the Phillies are going to win a World Series, this was the exact move they had to make to get uh, Trey Turner. They're paying less. All right. Last year, they started out in the season, Didi Gregorius and Gene Segura, right? They're paying less for the double play combination next year, even with Trey Turner making 27-7 A-V-V. A- A- um, Turner and Stott make less than Gregorius and Segura. All right. So just take it out of your mind, uh, like, like the cost. Um, okay. Okay. This makes the Phillies the most complete offensive lineup in baseball. If you can come up with another offensive lineup that's better than this, then, then have at it. And if they can shore up the pitching, they're going to be the World Series favorite. And, and we'll talk about the pitching in, in a little bit. But let, let's talk about the lineup, first of all. Turner, lead off. This is my lineup, all right? Um, I know a little bit about the game. I think this fits perfectly. Turner leads off. Schwarber. Is the two-hitter now. And why is he the two-hitter? Well, he he he's got a great eye. Uh Turner steals bases. He pulls the ball. You go first and third in the first inning, right, right out of the shoot. Um, or you may have a two-nothing lead if they both get on, right? If Turner gets on score, but home run. Reese Hoskins in the three-hole. I know a lot of people are hinky about that. I don't have a better spot for him unless. You're going to make Harper the three-hole hitter. And then where do you deal with Hoskins? I like the lefty-righty-lefty dynamic at this point. And you still have Harper in the four-hole and Real Muto to protect him in the fifth spot. So it's Turner, Schwarber, Hoskins, Harper, Real Muto, Castellanos. It's a big leap of faith to think he's going to come back. But that's his spot in the sixth hole. Stott, seven, Bohm, eighth. Again, lefty-righty dynamic. And uh, Marsh is your nine hitter. Now, I don't know if they're going to platoon next year with Veerling and and Sosa. I I have a feeling that both those guys are going to start out as everyday players, the two lefties, Stott and Marsh, and and we'll we'll see from there. So now let's look at the statistics of Trey Turner. The numbers are amazing. All right, so it's an 11-year deal, Um, 27-7. It keeps them under the luxury tax threshold for the time being. Two two fifty three is the luxury tax threshold. They have twenty one million under that right now. They're not going to be able to get Carlos Rodon with that unless they want to go over the threshold. So we'll see what happens there. Okay. So for Trey Turner, uh, in the years twenty 2020, twenty 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 one, Turner uh, finished in the top seven of MVP voting. Uh, an average for him of thirty one home runs per year per one hundred and sixty two games with a 931 OPS, uh, 37 steals projected over 162 games. Uh, His average over the last four seasons, uh, comparing it to Harper, let's start with Turner, 2019 to 2022, 20 home runs, average 311 BA, 367 OPB on base uh, percentage, 500 slugging percentage. Harper's average over that, those same years, 25 home runs, 282 B.A., 394 on base percentage, 546 slugging percentage. These two guys are going to pay amazing dividends. Now, of course, Harper's not going to play until the end of June, probably at the earliest. So having Turner in there to add some numbers to that lineup is pretty significant. Again, I'm making this lineup with Harper in it, and I, I know he's not going to be in it for the first several months of the season. All right, let's look at Turner now with 11 years. And so we'll get into a little bit of the downside of this. He's got a no trade clause. You know, you had to give in a little bit. Uh, the Phillies wanted the the average uh, uh, value, uh, the AAV, at under $30 million, So they had to go 11 years. Now, that's problematic down the road. We'll talk about that in a second. I believe that Trey Turner will find another position when he's 35. A lot of people say, well, why, Mike? Well, listen, in this day and age, there's been one outlier at shortstop that's played the position beyond age 35, and that was Derek Jeter. And frankly, over the last five years of his career, he wasn't that great at shortstop. So, um, and and I know Turner's a great athlete. I I just think that by when he's 35, six years into this deal, he'll either be at third base or he might be in left field. Uh, I don't know if he'll be in center field. the downside here is there's been only one other player signed to a maximum of seven year contract at age 29, and that was Robinson Cano. And you see how quickly he declined. Uh, I like to think that Turner is not that same kind of guy that he'll still be productive into his 30s. But you know, 11 years for a shortstop, uh, you can't expect that at age 38, 39, 40, he's still going to be playing that position. Uh, Anthony Rendon is a comparison. He hit a wall, bang, infielder uh, into his 30s, uh, has hit a wall. And, and again, Jeter is the uh, the only outlier in, in this whole thing. Um, Keith Law, who is more of a metrics analyst for this whole thing, claims that Stott would be better at the shortstop position than Turner would be, and Turner would be a better second baseman. Now, he does that with numbers. I do it with feel. Uh, I don't think Bryson Stott is an above-average shortstop. I think Turner is, even though last year he made a few more errors than, than I would like. So I don't agree with that. Um, Stott moves to second base. I think that is his position. I think Turner's the shortstop. That is his position. Uh, And so uh, there we go with that. It's an amazing sign. It's a a team. You got to love the Phillies and the way they operate right right now with Dave Dombrowski. Uh, Dombrowski obviously has John Middleton's ear and, and he has, and Bryce Harper has his ear too. There is, there is no question in my mind that when Bryce speaks, they act. And there's no question in my mind that in conversations with John Middleton, which I think Bryce Harper has a lot. he says, Go out and get my boy. And boom, Dombrowski goes out and and gets him. And this is a team that wants to make a commitment to win the freaking World Series. They were in it last year. They want to clinch the deal. And so they go out and get Trey Turner. It's an amazing signing. It might be, uh, listen, there have been three amazing signings for the Phillies. Uh, Harper is the number one. There's Jim Tomey in there. Trey Turner is every bit as important as a signing for the Phillies that they made in their history, and you're going to see that he's a great player. People love him. He's a gamer, uh, and he's going to pay a uh, big di- dividends for this team. So let's look at the pitching staff. You, you got to count on Wheeler being an ace uh, for another year, and you know that's a big ask because we saw that he wore down a little bit this year. All right, Nola is your number two, and you got to be okay with that, I guess, even though there are a lot of people in this town that that don't appreciate Nola and saw him meltdown a little bit in in the postseason. Ranger Suarez as the three, I'm okay with. They definitely need a four. Um, I know there's talk about one of the young kids taking that spot. I mean, that's not going to happen until – you know, I, I don't think they start the season with a youngster in that rotation. And they may get a little seasoning, whether it's Painter uh, or, or uh, McGriff or, or whoever. Um, they won't come in to the picture until June uh, or July, I believe. So who can they get? Uh, I don't know. You know, there's a couple of marginal back of the rotation starters that are out there that got qualifying offers by their teams, like a Chris Bassett. And the Phillies aren't going to give up a a compensatory draft pick to go out. When you give a guy a qualifying offer, it's going to cost you a compensatory draft pick. I don't think the Phillies are willing to do that. So right now, it's three starting pitchers. Um, They need a couple of bullpen guys. They have uh, $21 million to spend before they go over the threshold. I don't know what they decide to do. Uh, Carlos Rodon is also best friends with Trey Turner. They played together at NC State. They have talked to each other about playing with the same team. So uh, I don't know if we is willing to take a a lesser contract to play with his boy here and to play with a world series team. I don't know how that dynamic works or whether the Phillies are willing to go $30 million for Carlos Rodon and go over the threshold, which I think I'd have no problem doing it. I'd love spending John Middleton's money. So as far as I'm concerned, knock yourself out, go out and get the left-hander stick him in there uh, and the Phillies are the World Series favorite. You get Carlos Rodon. And I'm not so sure that they're not the favorite right now.
1: It's the Mike Mancinelli podcast on the Bet Rivers Network.
0: All right. Our uh, next guest on the Mike Mancinelli podcast today has a resume as long as uh, not just an arm, but a, a really long arm. Let me just tick down a few things 18 seasons NFL, AFC uh, championship with the Oakland Raiders, four time Pro Bowler, two time Pro Bowl MVP. An NFL MVP in 2002, three times uh, AFC Player of the Year, a Super Bowl appearance, a University of Delaware Hall of Famer, the pride of St. Joe's Prep, a sports commentator for uh, eight, 16 years with CBS, and you can hear him now on the Blitz, on Sirius XM, NFL Radio, and on the CBS Sports Network. Not bad for a kid from the mean streets of Philadelphia. We welcome in the great Rich Gannon. Rich, how are you doing today?
2: Mike, it was so good to be with your brother. Uh, I'm doing great. I just I just got back. I was at, back east for a while. I spent some time at our our place in Ocean City, New Jersey. Got actually got a chance to to spend Thanksgiving in Collegeville with all my uh, relatives and my mom and my brothers and sisters. So it was great to be back east. And of course, I, I got a chance to get back east earlier this year and watch the Eagles beat up on the Steelers. So uh, I'm really excited with with how this team is playing uh, through the first 13 weeks of the season.
0: Yeah, let's talk, let's talk about that. And uh, of course, you're you're a legend in this area. And, uh, we'll, we'll talk about uh, how you how you got to to St. Joe Prep and the University of Delaware and all that stuff. But let's talk about the Eagles, because uh, you know, as a quarterback, wh- when you look at this team and you see what Jalen Hurts is doing this year, um, it, it, to me, it's been one of the most amazing transformations I've ever seen. I mean, I, I came in this year still on the fence about him. And uh, his growth as a quarterback, not not just as a runner, because a lot of people just want to put him in that box. But w- what do you see with this kid?
2: Well, I, I see a quarterback that I think has really turned the corner. I, I think when you look at what he did his first year, I think he played four or five games. He completed 52%. That number jumped up to 61% last year. So I think we typically see a lot of improvement from year one to year two with a quarterback. But I think you look at what he's done this year, and I think he's become a lot more comfortable throwing the football that numbers up over 67 percent. You know, what's interesting, Mike, those numbers are very similar to what we saw with Josh Allen his first three years. There was a lot of people in Buffalo that didn't think after his first 18 games that he was the right guy. And you look at how, how good of a player he's become. I think Jalen Hurts has shown that he can do both. I mean, look what the Eagles did two weeks ago against the Green Bay Packers. I mean, you know, you rush for 363 yards, including 157 up from the quarterback, and then you shift gears. The following week, you face a really good Tennessee run defense. It's third against the run. and get up only 84 yards a game, and they're able to throw the ball, you know, for almost 400 yards. And so, to me, that's a sign of real growth and maturity at the quarterback position. I think the decision-making's gotten better. The accuracy, I think his feet are getting better. And, of course, it doesn't hurt that the Eagles went out and got A.J. Brown. I mean, you know, that helps. You prepare him alongside the Devontae Smith, the offensive line, their ability to, to run the football. This is a really well balanced offense that I think can do some really real damage in the postseason.
0: Yeah, they're, they're pretty complete on offense. There's no question AJ filled them out a little bit. They get a great tight end. It well, hasn't actually been playing for the last several weeks and it hasn't stopped them a bit. The offensive line is, is really solid. But w- when you look at a quarterback's improvement for one year to the next, those things really help. But you've still got to be able to deliver the football. He's been really assertive and he's been really accurate no matter what kind of ball he's he's throwing. And I didn't see that that quickly
2: coming into this year. No, you're right. And I think that, you know, you go back to what happened last year. And I think in about week five, Nick Sirianni decided to shift gears a little bit and take the ball out of his hands, you know, and to really run the football. And then you go down to Tampa in the playoff game, they fall behind. I think he got exposed. I think the offense got exposed. And I think that's no longer the case. I think they have the ability that they have to throw 35 or 40 times in a game that he can do that. I think he's processing better. I think the game has slowed down for him. I think you can see it in his feet and, and his accuracy, not only in the deep ball, but the short and intermediate throws. He just looks like he's he's a, he's, he's a lot more in control of things. And that's what you want from your, your quarterback. You know, you want a, a guy that as a great decision-maker, a guy that uh, sees the field well, a guy that can get you out of bad situations. I, I think that's so important, Mike. When I evaluate the quarterback, you know, the ability to th- – there's going to be four or five plays in every game where something goes wrong. The left tackle swings and misses. The receiver falls down at the top of his route. Uh, th- does your quarterback have the ability – to make five or six big plays each week. And Jalen Hurts has shown that he can do that. You know, obviously, Patrick Mahomes does that. Uh, Josh Allen does that. You know, Aaron Rodgers for years has done that. Uh, Maybe not so much uh, this season, but, you know, that that ability at that position to me is absolutely critical. You know, the ability to extend, create, manufacture plays, and Jalen Hurts has shown time and time again that he can do that. And at the same time, I think continue to evolve as a pocket passer.
0: Right, let's talk about that dynamic and and today's quarterback. Because uh, the way I look at Jalen Hurts right now, he's almost indefensible. And, and an example is that Green Bay game. They started out with a spy on him, which was the way you normally defeated guys that were mobile. And he just, uh, you know, he just disintegrated that early. He he the, the, he beat the spy to the spot. So Green Bay just gave up and and had to play him conventionally. Today's quarterback, it, it, do you and you were a mobile quarterback, so obviously the, I think you could speak to this. Does today's court is it almost essential to have those kind of abilities in today's game with the evolution of defenses and the quickness that people have on defense these days.
2: Well, it's an important component. I mean, if you're going to draw up your your franchise quarterback and you look at you know all the different qualities and intangibles that you look for, that's certainly one of them. Now, that being said. You know, if you've got experience, if you've got a terrific arm talent, if you're really smart, like a Tom Brady or Peyton Manning or a Drew Brees, and you've been in, a, in a, one system for you know the better part of ten years or more, then you know we can function around you. You know, we can still uh, we can still operate and move the football and, and score a lot of points because you know we have a quarterback that can is has pinpoint accuracy. He's got experience. He's able to change plays and protection. So, you know, I, I think, but you know. The ideal situation is, in in this day and age, when you have these great pass rushers and you've got the athleticism and the skill set that some of these defensive players have, and we're seeing a lot more uh, pressures and different things like that to get the quarterback off the spot, I think it's imperative that you have a quarterback that can defend himself, that can escape pressure, that can extend plays. Uh, even from a health standpoint like to me like I want a quarterback that if there's a free rusher can make a guy miss and and, th- and throw the ball away or get out of bounds or not take the unnecessary hits that's I tell it to young quarterbacks all the time and I just think you, know, you look at some of these quarterbacks Josh Allen Patrick Mahomes Jalen Hurts uh you know guys that can that can extend plays that can move around that can run for a few first downs each week Uh, Those, to me, are the ones that are most attractive right now to general managers and head coaches and teams around the National Football League.
0: We're talking to Rich Gann, of course, a a player many years in the NFL and and an analyst for NFL football um, and a a St. Joe Prep product, of course, a local guy. Now, now, Rich, uh, let's talk about the Eagles because, uh, I don't know, I, I get the sense that they're underplayed nationally a little bit. Uh, and everybody talks about, you know, you'll hear the Chiefs, you'll hear the Bills, and the Eagles are just kind of riding in that spot at 11-1. and one. It like they're going to be the absolute number one seed uh, in, in the NFL. How good are they in your mind?
2: I think they're very good. I, You know, I, I don't pay a lot of attention to these rankings and things like that because they change week to week. I mean, you know, you, you go out and you play – you know, a team you should beat and you lose, and all of a sudden everybody thinks you're you're terrible. I mean, the Minnesota Vikings have been fighting this all season long. I mean, you know, they, they've got 10 wins. And the difference between the Vikings this year and last year, last year they were two and five and games that's decided by four points or less. And this year they're winning those close games. And the reality of our our business is is that every game's gonna be a close game. I mean I don't care who you're playing on the schedule. These are, you know, these are paid professionals, coaches and players, and and it's gonna be competitive. I would just tell you that the Eagles, I think, are trending in the right direction. But I would also tell you that so are the Dallas Cowboys. I mean, you know, you look at what they've done the last couple of weeks. Uh, the quarterback is healthy. They're running the football well. They've got a terrific defense. They can press you. So, I mean, if you're asking me who are the best teams in the, fo- in the football right now, I'd say it's, it's the Philadelphia Eagles. I think it's the Dallas Cowboys. I think it's the Buffalo Bills. I think it's the Kansas City Chiefs. I think it's the Cincinnati Bengals. I mean, their defense has played really well. They've got Joe Burrow. So, to me, I mean, they're – you know, they're, they're some of the best teams in the league. And, and quite frankly, I could care less where you rank them. It doesn't really matter. I mean, we're it's all going to work its way out in the wash here in the next five or six weeks anyway. So, But I like what I'm seeing from the Philadelphia Eagles. I think their defense I, – I think they play complementary football really well, Mike. I, I think, you know, they, they get these leads early. The second quarter has been very good for the Philadelphia Eagles. And then they just sit on you. I mean, they can be physical with their defense. You know, look at the sacks last week against the Tennessee Titans. They held – you know, one of the best running backs in football to 30 yards rushing. I mean, if you can shut down the run, you can get a lead, and then you can just go after people. Uh, that's that's a really good formula for success. I like the fact that they can they rotate that defensive line. They've got you know seven or eight players that they can roll through there, to keep fresh. They got corners that are really aggressive that'll sit and squat on throws. You look at Slay, you look at Bradbury. Uh, they get uh, CJ Gardner Johnson back here at some point. I mean, he's having you know he's having a you know, I don't want to say a defensive MVP type year, but he's having a defensive player of the year type of season back there in that secondary. That was a great addition for the Eagles uh, in the beginning of the season. So I really like what I'm seeing from this football team. And I think even last week, we saw better play out of the kicking game. The special teams were better. So, uh, you know, I, I think these next four or five weeks are going to be important for the Philadelphia Eagles. You want to go to the, the, the postseason healthy and playing, uh, playing your best football and playing with some confidence and momentum.
0: Listen, you're you're an Irish Catholic kid from Philly. What what are your family? What's the reaction from your family, your friends in Philly about this team right now?
2: Oh, everybody's excited. I mean, you know, I I think I think you look at their record and every every time that they've started uh, eleven and one, they they've either been to the NFL championship or the Super Bowl. So, you know, look, um, I think everyone's excited. Uh, I think you know. Uh, this is what you want, right? The city of brotherly love. You want the Flyers to do well. I want the Sixers to do well. The Phillies coming off of a, an appearance in the World Series. And now you've got the Eagles uh, positioned to do something special in the postseason. But I think a lot of it, you know, I think Howie Roseman's done a really nice job, but I am really intrigued by the young quarterback. I'm not going to lie to you, Mike. I had my concerns. I think after what I saw uh, his first, you know, 20, 22 games, or whatever it was, the 17 last year and, and the four or five, he played the, the first year. I didn't know if he was Justin Fields. I didn't know if he was just going to run around. I didn't know if he could sit in there and trust the protection. I didn't know how well he could process, how quickly he could play from the pocket, but I'm seeing a lot of positive signs when it comes to Jalen Hurts. Did you grow up an Eagles fan? I did in a way. And what I mean by that is, uh, you know, obviously I liked the Eagles growing up, but they weren't very good. As you remember, I grew up, I grew up, I was born in 65. So I, you know, I, and I was following football from the time I was five or six. So, but they were bad. You know, I remember Mike Barillo and I remember Roman Gabriel. And I just remember some of those teams that were just unwatchable. And then of course, Nick Mill came to town and, and that, that was a fun, that was a fun, uh, a fun time, you know, growing up uh, in, in the late seventies, you know, I was some really good friends with Ron Jaworski, Mike Quick, those guys, Wilbert Montgomery, uh, Bill Berge, all those guys. So it was fun to see them finally have some success. You're disappointed that they didn't win the Super Bowl against uh, the Raiders, but, uh, you know, they did some great things, and, and I think they certainly built a, uh, a legacy that we can all be very proud of.
0: All right, let's talk about uh, the evolution of your football life. So um, y- you go to St. Joe Prep. Now, you got to be a pretty lofty player for St. Joe Prep to, to ha- get, get your attention. So I assume that uh, you were that. And um, what school would you have gone to had you not gone to the Prep?
2: I would have gone to Cardinal Doherty. So you know, I, I grew up in Northeast Philadelphia. I had an older brother, uh, John, that played on the city championship team at the prep in 1977, and so uh, I followed him to the prep. I also followed him to the University of Delaware. He was a three-year starter at Delaware. So um, you know, I, I I grew up around the game. Uh, I I loved it. I started playing organized football when I was in second grade at Saint Cecilia's and uh, Fox Chase uh, Fox Rock uh, organization. So you know, I was I just. You know, we, it's what we did in the neighborhood. We played hockey in, in the in the wintertime, and 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 then we played baseball in the springtime. We played hoops. We played football. We did it all. But uh, I just had a passion and a love from football at a very very early age.
0: All right. So University of Delaware after that, and you know the great program under Tubby. Obviously, um, the Division One offers. What did you did you turn any down to go to Delaware?
2: Yeah. So you know, one of the things when I was at the prep, I was about six foot two and about one hundred and eighty maybe 185 pounds. So I wasn't, I wasn't the kind of guy that Penn state was looking at. I wasn't six, 6'4, 225. obviously growing up in, in, in Pennsylvania, I, I always, I used to get up Saturday mornings and watch, uh, you know, the 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 highlight show from Penn state today. And, and I always, you know, dreamed I'd have an opportunity to go play at Penn state or Notre Dame. I I did get some letters and some feelers. uh, But, you know, a lot of those schools, I didn't play defense in high school. I only played quarterback. That was probably a mistake. And so, you know, a lot of these teams, um, a lot of these universities, uh, did, I wasn't highly recruited. Bruce Arians came to town a, in my senior year at Temple, and I was his first recruit. And he really wanted me to go to to Temple. And I had gone to school in North Philadelphia. I wanted to kind of get out on my own. And and so uh, Maryland recruited me at the end. But I, I just, I, I like Delaware. And in hindsight, Mike, it probably wasn't the best place for me from a football standpoint. I got a lot of experience. It was a three-year startup. I played in the Delaware Wing Tee. So by the time I I left in eighty the eighty six season and went to the NFL, I had no idea about pro passing attacks, co- concepts, footwork, um, you know, protections, defenses. It was very elementary to me, and it, it did take me a while to kind of get my feet underneath me in the NFL.
0: Yeah, the wing T very different, and uh, but you were still drafted in, in the fourth round, uh, and but you go to the Patriots. And they immediately want to change your position. Talk to me about that a little bit.
2: Yeah, actually, I got I got drafted in 87. And then, uh, I basically, uh, I got a call from Dick Steinberg, who was the general manager, and Raymond Burry, who was the head coach. And I'll never forget it. I was at my apartment at the University of Delaware. And I, and I was excited I got drafted. And it was the fourth round. I was a 96th overall pick. And and uh, Dick Steinberg said, hey, we're really excited for you. We just want to find the best position for you. And I thought to myself, <laughs> What? Like, what do you mean? I'm your quarterback. What do you mean, the best position? And I hung up the phone. I was so disappointed. I remember calling my mom and dad. I, I, I wasn't quite in tears, but I was really concerned. And I said, Dad, I'm, I'm just gonna go to law school. My dad was an attorney, I got accepted to law school. I just thought, you know, I'm not gonna go to an NFL training camp, put on a different set of pads, try to learn a different position, try and make an NFL team. I just thought the the chances were weren't very good. And so I asked to be traded. I called the Patriots up. I got traded six days later to the Minnesota Vikings. And, uh, you know, uh, the rest is history. I got a chance to go play behind a couple veteran guys. Tommy Kramer, Wade Wilson were both at Pro Bowl quarterbacks. And I got a chance to to watch, listen, and learn a little bit. And finally got a chance to play. And But uh, those first six years in Minnesota were kind of interesting.
0: Well, that's pretty ballsy, first of all, to ask for a trade. <laughs> but the Patriots draft you. So I, I admire that. What position were they thinking of making you?
2: I think they really, you know, I played, we played a lot of schools in New England. Uh, We played like Boston, we played Holy Cross, we played Boston University. uh, We played like, you know, Rhode Island, uh, Connecticut, you know, some of those schools up that way. And so I think that one of the scouts for the Patriots saw me play a bunch and thought, you know, this guy's a really good athlete. He could come in, he could play special teams for us, he could play defensive back, Uh, we could use him. you know, in, 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 you know, in the running game or something I don't know. I have, I mean, I ne- we, we never got that far down the line. I just knew that it wasn't a good fit for me. And so this is obviously long before Bill Belichick was there, but I got traded and I uh, went to Minnesota and, and uh, the good thing about it, I spent six years here. I eventually got traded again to Washington, but before I left, I met and married my wife. So uh, that's why we still make our home here in Minnesota.
0: Yes, you are a Minnesotan, And I get to Listen, it's cold in Philly. But you know I went to that Super Bowl in 2017 where the snow was coming from every direction I mean how do you how do you survive Minnesota winners
2: it's easy I, I did it for a long time and then about five years ago both of my daughters graduated from Bucknell one's in medicine now one's in finance in New York and once we became empty nesters we started to go out west so we we actually uh, we're leaving uh, on Monday for Palm Desert, California. So I spend about five months in the wintertime in Palm Desert. We get away from here in the wintertime. We come back when the weather's nice, the ice is off the lakes, the golf courses are open. And then we spend quite a bit of time, Mike, believe it or not, in Ocean City, New Jersey. We're probably there two months uh, every summer. You know, we come in for a couple, two weeks. We come back, come and spend 20 days there around the 4th of July. So I love it. All my family and friends are there and, and got a lot of college uh, teammates that that have places in Ocean City. So we love the Jersey Shore.
0: Can never get to Jersey Shore out, out of your heart. I, I have a place in Strathmere, so we're we're practically neighbors. Uh, uh, there, we're we'll probably running each other oh, at the Doville.
2: Yeah, you'll catch me at the Twisties. I was just at the Doville Twisties. Yep, I was just at the Doville uh, Thanksgiving. Uh, I think. Uh, Friday night, we, we went and had dinner over there. So that's a great spot. What a, what an incredible property! My goodness. Right yeah, they, they
0: really built it up and, and transformed it. Uh, all right, so let's talk about the career a little bit because you're, you're mentioning some legendary names: Wade Wilson, Tommy Kramer, Sean Salisbury is in there that you're battling for a job. Uh, you, you get the starting job in 1992, and you, you go 11 and five. It's a pretty good year. So I, I assume you know, like that's the year you think you arrived in this league. Yeah, then I got traded.
2: So yeah, they traded you to Washington. So what happened was they they hired that year in in 1992. They hired uh, Denny Green from Stanford, and and uh, so he came in. He became the head coach, and I held out a training camp. I was uh, I was without a contract, so I missed part of a couple couple of weeks of training camp. I don't think he liked that. We never really. I honestly, I I don't know that I ever had a real conversation with him the, the whole year that I was there. I came back. We got off to a great start. We're eight and three. I think we had a two or three game lead in, in in our division. And he sits me down. And we we had been banged up. Chris Carter was hurt. Anthony Carter was. We had a bunch of guys that were banged up a little bit. And we lost a really close game to somebody. I can't remember. I think we lost to Washington, who was a really good team. We lost fifteen to thirteen. Had a chance at the end. And and, and so. I, get, I, I come into the facility on Monday and the offensive coordinator comes up to me and says, hey, you're not going to start this week. I said, we want to rest you up. You're you're, you're kind of banged up. The offense is banged up. We're, we're going to make a little change and put in Sean Salisbury. I was like, what? And so Denny Green never came to me, never said a word. And at that point, I lost all respect for him. And so he sat me down for two weeks. And then, and then he put me back in against Steve Young and Jerry Rice and Roger Craig and the, and the 49ers. So – Um, and we lost another close game. So, uh, and then I didn't play again. So uh, I got traded after that season. Um, nothing against Sean Salisbury. He's he's a buddy of mine, but he he was not a good player and he was, um, and, and, uh, you know, it, it, our team was terrible. We, We hosted a home playoff game and lost to Washington. And I don't know that we, I don't know that we, I don't know that. I don't know. How, I don't know if we had six or seven first downs in the game. So I had to sit there and watch it. And that was the end of it. So I got traded and it really, it kind of pushed me back. I had to go, I got traded right after training camp. I went to Washington. The team wasn't very good. I played in four games. I had rotator cuff surgery. I was actually out of football in 1994. And then I had to, I had to kind of restart my career. Went to Kansas City as a backup and played there four years. And then eventually got a chance in 99 to be a free agent, went out, met Mr. Davis and John Gruden, and, and the rest is history.
0: Yeah, I want to talk about the Gruden dynamic. Uh, but you also had Jerry Burns as your coach, and and I don't think he believed in you either until you grabbed that job and had a good year, and then Green comes in. And so, in a way, you got you got screwed by two coaches in Minnesota.
2: Yeah, you know, honestly, it's so important. I'll give you a great example. I think you look at Tua Tungabalola this year and what Mike McDaniel's done with him, or even – you no, know, I think you can look at Daniel Jones uh, and and with the Giants and what Brian Dable's done. I mean, it, it's amazing when somebody comes in and puts their arm around you and, and has confidence in you and says, "You know what? You're my quarterback." I always go back to you know, what Dick Vermeil did on the sidelines with Ron Jaworski. I'll never forget that when they were struggling one season and one game in particular, and 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 Dick comes up to him and says, "Hey, I'm not going to jerk you around. You're my guy." And I, I've talked to Ron about that how how important that was to him and what it meant to him. And I think that's so important. Some of these head coaches, some of these defensive head coaches, they simply don't get it. That relationship between quarterback and play caller, quarterback and head coach is absolutely vital. And I never got that with Jerry Burns. I was never his guy. I never got it with Denny Green. Quite frankly, Marty Schottenheimer, I was never Marty's guy. And even though in the 90, 97 season, I, I started the last eight games, we went 7-1, and one, and he didn't start me in the playoff game against John Elway and the Broncos, and we lost at home. We were 13-3. So I was never, you know, it was wasn't until I finally got to Oakland with John Gruden, where John Gruden sat me down. And his, I never forget it. We sat down in his office, and and it was a Friday night, and he went and got a six pack of beer. We sat there, started watching cut ups and watching tape, and, and he said, "You know what? Because you and I are gonna do this together. Either it's gonna work, and we're both gonna, you know, ride off into the sunset, or we're both gonna get fired. But we're gonna do it together." And I said, "I put my hand. I go, let's do it." And we did. And for three years, we turned we turned the fortunes of a of a franchise around that had been really down in the dump. And I'm proud of that.
0: Pretty good transformation. Uh, and it was the West Coast offense that seemed to be uh, tailor-made for you. But uh, but I know uh, you're a competitive guy, and Gruden is beyond competitive. Uh, <laughs> you know, I, I was uh, covering the team when, when he was battling with Ricky Waters. I was doing a TV show with Ricky. I'll tell you that story in a second. But, but what was it? Uh, 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 how about the clashes with him and, and the dynamic that developed with him? Because you guys went back and forth a lot.
2: Yeah. You know what? I, I, he was like a brother to me. We were only about 18 months apart in age. And so, you know, John was very competitive as was I, Uh, John could push certain buttons. He'd he'd say certain things to me during a game just to uh, get a response. And, uh, the thing about it was the guy, the first person I always ran into after a game in the locker room was him. And, you know, we could be yelling at each other, but we loved each other and we had great respect for one another. The one thing I didn't want to do with Mike was ever let him down. I mean, I cared so much about him. He didn't want to let me down. He's still to this day one of my dear friends. Uh, and so we had a great relationship, great work working relationship. We were we were tireless workers. I mean, we left no stone unturned. We'd come in early, we'd stay late. Uh, it was a passion for both of us. And I'm proud of what we accomplished. You know, in three seasons there, we were one of the most competitive teams in football. You know, we, we were 12 and four in my second season, 11 and five in my third season. Um, you know, had I not separated my shoulder in the AFC Championship game in 2000, we'd probably go on to win a Super Bowl together, but did a lot of good things together with John Grew down in Oakland.
0: And we're going to talk about uh, 2002 in a second, but let me just tell you this quick story about Ricky, who battled with Gruden almost every day because Ricky Waters wanted the ball every day. And John Gruden wanted to throw it every down. So I was, doing, I was hosting a TV show with Ricky Waters live at the 8th Floor Nightclub. Remember that on Delaware Avenue? Sure. The 8th eight, the Floor. So Ricky would never show up on time. It was a live show. Literally within 30 seconds of us being on the air, he would show up in the elevators. So one day he's there earlier than me. And this was when he uh he he was on the Eagles sidelines and he wasn't getting the ball and he pointed up to the to the uh to the level where Gruden was the offensive coordinator and he's like ranting and raving at him. So there was a big controversy between those two guys. So I I come into the show and the producer says to me, Ricky wants to see. You. I go, Ricky, he's here? He goes, Yeah, he's in the bathroom. So so I go into the bathroom and I was doing Talk Radio at the time, and Ricky's at the urinal, so I got saddled up next to him. Uh, And he says, were they talking about me on the air today? I go, yeah, I guess when you point up to the offensive coordinator's booth, they're going to be talking about you. He goes, why don't they talk about the MF offensive coordinator who can't call an MF game? So those guys never got along, <laughs> but but Gruden, like to his credit, wasn't afraid to clash with you, and I think that that brought out the best in, in some players who want who who wanted to battle him to show him that they were great players.
2: You know, I I competed with Ricky in the at Jeep Superstars competition one year. I got to know him a little bit, and of course, uh, I remember being out in Oakland uh, after Ricky left. Philly. I can't remember where he went. He was in Seattle. He was in San Francisco. and I was talking about bringing him to Oakland. I'm, I'm like, let's do it. You know? So, I mean, he was a fun, honestly, he was a very gifted and talented player. There's no question about it. Did he, was he, uh, was he selfish at times? Yeah. Was he, uh, could he be a bit of a handful of prima donna? Yeah. But honestly, like, he would have fit in that locker room in Oakland pretty good because we had a lot of those guys. But when, when, when it came time for kickoff, they were ready to roll and we had Charlie Garner was like that. And in some ways, you know, maybe not as vocal or as outspoken, but like, I mean, you know, you didn't know what Charlie was going to do on Friday night. Uh, You know, you don't know where he'd be. You don't even know if he'd get to the stadium on time, but man, with that kickoff, the guy was ready to roll.
0: It's amazing all the guys you've played with and all the stories you have probably filed. But You're the NFL MVP in 2002. I mean, that's the monster year. 46-29, 26 TDs, 10 interceptions, 97.3 rating. You get to the Super Bowl, and that's of course, is the year that Philadelphia uh, Eagle fans, their heart just drops because Gruden, with the, now at the Tampa Bay Bucks beat them in the NFC title game, the last game at the Vet, and, and, and it's, the, it's the Super Bowl. So what was that experience like for you?
2: Well, obviously, if it doesn't end the way you want it, it's, it's, it's a really disappointing experience. I, I think looking back on it, it's one of the most regrettable experiences in my life because of all the things that happened. We played a really good Tampa defense. A lot of those guys, you know, Sapp and Brooks and Simeon Rice and John Lynch and, you know, Barber, all those guys are, you know, Hall of Fame, either in the Hall of Fame or on the cusp of getting in the Hall. They had a really good defense. They were younger than us. Uh, they were better prepared for that game. I hate to say it, Mike, but the reality of it is, a lot of our players spent the week like they normally do, drinking and partying, and and we had one player in particular that didn't even show up for the game. You know, Pro Bowl center, you know, that didn't even bother, you know, making it back from Mexico. So we had so many distractions. Uh, We didn't we didn't get off to a good start. We weren't able to run the football. That's really how you beat that Buccaneer defense. We we beat them forty to nothing, I think, the year before, and we had great success with the running game, play action game. Uh, Actually, when John Gruden was our 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 head coach. So, um, you know, we got off to a bad start. Uh, you know, we had to try and come from behind that took some unnecessary risk. We turned the football over, we didn't play well defensively. And then, you know, you lose a game like that. So, um, that was, that was disappointing, you know, and, and John, you know, I think he knew us very well from a personnel perspective, knew our lot of our signals and things like that. So we had a change in game and we fell behind against a pretty good team, a well-coached team and and the results are what they are
0: what's that like for a quarterback to know that that your center is like a wall uh, yeah, and, and I mean, you're going like, into what like the yeah. biggest game of your life
2: not only that but when you got Warren Sapp you know over there and I think I got sacked I don't know if I got sacked the first pass of the game I mean we just had a really difficult time of protection we had a difficult time with communication you know the, the the center and the quarterback that's the that's the hub of the communication uh so we had all kind of issues that day and you know, it's hard. You know, it's hard to win this game. It's hard to win. I always say people don't understand how hard it is to make a first down in the NFL. It is hard. And if people don't understand how hard it is to, like, you know, win a game in the division or go on the road and win a game. To win a Super Bowl, you got to do a lot of things right. And unfortunately for us, we we, we just did, we didn't do enough things right. And, and quite frankly, we didn't do enough things right leading up to the game. That's what's like, – it's one thing if you just go out there and physically they're the better team or you just, you know – it just it just doesn't work out. It's another thing to know that you didn't put forth your forth your best effort. I know I couldn't tell you how hard I worked that week. I mean, like I always do. And to think that you look around the locker room, not everybody put forth the same effort and energy and had the same passion for it was 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 heartbreaking. Something I'll never get over.
0: Um, of course, you're you're in Minnesota, and uh, well, I think my producer Darren's too young to remember. But your your father-in-law is Bill Brown, who is an old school Viking running back with uh, with a crew cut. Uh, and, the, and the whole bit, right? Tell me tell me a little bit about him.
2: Oh my gosh. I mean, I actually knew my father-in-law before I, I knew my wife Shelly. And so he was, you know, he played, he, he was originally drafted by the Bears and then was traded to the Vikings after his first year with George Hollis. And he came up here, he played in three Super Bowls, played in four Pro Bowls, one of the toughest players of his era, great fullback uh, with Fran Tarkenton and Joe Cap and all those great purple people-eater teams. And and then he, and then, of course, at the end of his career, i think in his thirteenth season, he was the captain of the special teams. He'd run down and cover kicks and punts and he did it all he was he was he was about as tough as they come so I got to know him and of course eventually met shelley and but uh he's no longer with us he had a lot of he had he suffered from dementia and parkinson's he had twelve documented concussions he he had a really tough uh final five or six years, but uh, one of the toughest and most respected players, actually a member of the Viking Ring of Honor, Bill Brown. Uh,
0: yeah, I I had Bill Brown's football card, and I remember looking at him with the crew cut, and the old-style the old football cards where, where every guy looked like uh, just tough as nails. And he, he was one of those guys. Uh, all right, so let's let's talk about some of the guys you played with a little bit because um, uh, right as we speak, there's, a, there's an election in Georgia where we, an old running back that you shared a huddle with, is running in the runoff. Uh, Herschel Walker. Uh, w- what was Herschel like in the huddle?
2: Quiet, um, very uh, determined, but very quiet. Didn't say a lot. Even forget the huddle. Even in practice in the locker room, he was very soft-spoken, uh, incredibly um, determined and motivated. I mean, he was a specimen. I mean, he back in the day, like he was. He was like uh, you know. He, he was just unique. I mean, he, was, he, he wasn't he was a big weight room guy. That's interesting. They did a ton of sit-ups and push-ups and running and conditioning, but he was just physically so gifted. He wasn't really a great fit in our offense. We gave up way too much to get him. He was more of an eye back when you look at what he did at Georgia and even with the Cowboys. We, we tried to put him all set. We tried to do some different things with him. It was really a bad decision. Mike. When, you think about being a part of some bad decisions, like Al Davis trading away John Gruden. Like He's traded away our, our head coach. We're, we're – we're, <laughs> We're like building a great program in Oakland. He trades away the head coach the following year we lose to him in the Super Bowl. Mike Lynn trading away like eight players and all our draft picks to go out and get Herschel Walker. That was like, I mean, that, that'll go down as maybe one of the worst decisions in the history. Of the <laughs> well, you, you're the like, quarterback. You at, what, are you, what are you thinking about like, that trade? Well, look at not only that, but like look how it positioned the Dallas Cowboys. The Cowboys and Jerry Jones, they went on to win multiple Super Bowls because of the draft picks that they got and players that they got. That was one of the worst. You know, that's what happens. You get people in positions that that aren't qualified.
0: How did you handle huddles? Yeah, Chris Carter, a diva. How did you handle huddles? There are a lot. You know, like Dan Marino. Would get, you see what Brady does. What was your mindset as far as as getting like, getting in people's ass or or not?
2: Yeah, I ran the huddle, so I was the only one that talked in the huddle. I mean, there'd be times during a TV timeout or somebody have a, an opinion or someone was asking a question or something, but. I had no problem running the huddle. I didn't care, you know, if guys were 10 years older than me or 10 years younger, it didn't matter. I mean, I was the CEO. I had the answers. I ran the huddle. Uh, At times, I would jump certain guys. At times, I would try and build another guy up. But, you know, you learn how to lead. You know, you learn how to be a good communicator in the huddle. I knew there were certain guys in the huddle that needed extra information. Hey, hey, Timmy, cut your split. Hey, Jerry, heads up for the hand signal. Hey, alert for 358. Hey, if I get this, I'm going to get us to this. You know, hey, we're down in the red zone. Hey, get your head around a little bit quicker. Hey, we're in a situation now that, you know, we, we can't have any penalties. I mean, there's certain tips and reminders as you get to be, uh, you know, an experienced guy that you can really help with certain players. I just remember going in the huddle. We have a lot of guys that jump all sides. So I finally said, you know what? We're going to go in a hard count. I'm going to remind them. So I'd go in the huddle and say, hey, sit in, sit in, hard count, hard count, explode the double wing right, two jet flanker drive, halfback corner on a hard three, hard three, ready, break. I told him, so you can't, I mean, you got to tell them ahead of time. You reinforce it at the end. And, and that's kind of how you, you have to help certain guys out. But the, a lot of communication happens in the huddle and the, and the really good quarterbacks uh, are masters at it.
0: But, but you know, these wide receivers are divas. So did you uh, find yourself saying, shut the F up occasionally?
2: Well, I, I play with a lot of them. I, you know, I play with Chris Carter. I play with Anthony Carter. I played with uh, Art Monk. I played with Tim Brown, Jerry Rice. I played with a lot of, you know, great players, all of them. Like Jerry Rice and Tim Brown were as easy as it gets. He, Jerry Rice didn't have to say – Jerry Rice just looked at you. He didn't need to say anything. He just looked at you. In a big moment, he just looked at you like, hey, don't be dumb. Just throw it to me. Like, he didn't have to say anything. Meanwhile, Chris Carter, he was always talking. You know, Chris Carter may be the most difficult guy I ever had to play with. He, he was a handful. There's no question about it.
0: That's amazing. Uh, uh, all right, so uh, the most fascinating or impressive players you ever played with, the ones that you – you know, I went with the war with that guy. That guy was money. Uh, and, and, and I don't know if Carter's the most – you already just said he might be the most frustrating. But who are the guys that resonate with you?
2: Some of the best players, the smartest players. Marcus Allen was one of the smartest players I ever played with. Tim Brown, you could you could install the whole plan on on Wednesday, and by the time you walked out there on the field 15 minutes later for the walkthrough, he, he knew it all. He had a photographic memory. Jerry Rice had an incredible work ethic. Um, Art Monk, one of the most selfless players I ever played with. Uh, you know, Tony Gonzalez. I, mean, I could go on and on. I played with so many, you know, Gary Zimmerman, Randall McDaniel, John Randall, a lot of the Hall of – you know, you talk about the Hall of Fame players, and I think, you know, they're unique in that they're not not only – the they're really talented players, but they're typically your hardest working, your smartest players in the building. You know, I mean, there's there's a direct correlation between not just being good, but being great at what you do and taking great pride in your preparation, and performance. A lot of those players I just mentioned fall into that category.
0: Talking to Rich, Gannon, Rich, just quickly on the media career because you you evolved very nicely into a, to a really nice media career. And you know, I listen to your serious show uh, religiously, and you know, your insights are right on point. You're able to communicate it. So, was media something you always wanted to get into? Or, or did someone uh you know lead you into that?
2: Yeah, I had no desire when I retired in o 04- four a lot of opportunities to get into the front office, to get into coaching. I didn't want to do that. I felt like for, for so long, my career was about me and my training and my schedule and my travel. I had young daughters. So I, I just said, I didn't want to do that. And so my agent called me and said, CBS wants you to come into New York to do an audition. And I wasn't sure I wanted to do that. I went and and did it. And actually I worked with, I did an audition with Gus Johnson, who was with CBS at the time. He's now at Fox and I really had fun doing it. And Eventually started calling games, got a chance to call games with Dick Emberg my first year and and some others and Don Cricky and, you know, guys that I I looked up to and called a lot of my games and eventually called games with Greg Gumbel and Marv Albert and Kevin Harlan was with CBS for 17 years, still with CBS through the NFL Monday QB show, still still around it but uh, you know I just I really enjoyed the process and you know preparing for a game like as an NFL quarterback watching both defenses and both offenses and looking at storylines and issues of why one team is good in one area and they're struggling in another area so I still do it I still I still enjoy the process still enjoy getting ready for my radio show on the tv shows and all that I do 33rd team doing that with Joe Banner and and, uh, you know, Mike Tannenbaum and and uh, it's been a lot of fun. I, I've been blessed. I've been basically for the last 35 years since I finished the University of Delaware, I've been I've been fooling around with this game of football. and It's been pretty fun.
0: Yeah. 17 years as an analyst. You, you lasted a, a really long time in, in a cutthroat business. Were you disappointed when that part of it ended?
2: Well, you know, I mean, I, I, I enjoyed doing the games. My contract was up. Um, you know, obviously, they're, they're looking, I think, for some younger guys and maybe more diverse and so that was all fine and i still have a great relationship with cbs still do the nfl monday qb show on cbs sports network uh and still doing nfl radio and and uh so i'm still around it less travel which is good for me i can still do the show from here at the house and and uh so shelly's happy everybody's happy it's been all good
0: that's awesome. Listen, you get a great life card out for yourself. You get a Palm Desert and leave the Minnesota winters. Uh, Rich, listen, it's, it's been great talking to you. And uh, thanks a lot for coming on. We really appreciate it. And that was fun.
2: Absolutely. Thanks, Mike. Thanks for having me.
1: It's the Mike Yosinelli Podcast on the Bet Rivers Network.
0: All right. Thanks to Rich Gannon for joining the show. Um, that was fun. I like uh, talking to Rich in his career. It is time for a little segment we do on the Mike Missnelli podcast called Three Questions for Mike. Darren, what are the questions for today? Oh,
3: three questions. Love three questions. Love coming up with it for you. Um, Unfortunately, for the second show in a row, uh, we're going to start with a celebrity female death (laughs) And and how that pertains to the question. We talked about Christy McVie the other day. Now, Kirstie Alley passed away, unfortunately, of cancer. Um, did some great stuff. On Cheers, she is responsible. She may be the only, like usually when they replace a character with another actor for, you know, change a character in or out, it doesn't work out. In that case with Cheers, I always thought that her character of Rebecca re- uh, replacing Shelly Long's Diane was an improvement. I wasn't a big Diane fan. She was whiny. She brought the show down, in my opinion. Rebecca was very funny. Kirstie Alley, very funny on Cheers. My question to you is, what is the what is the best sitcom ever, but I'm taking Cheers out and I'm taking Seinfeld out. No Cheers, no Seinfeld, best sitcom ever.
0: Uh, <laughs> well, uh, you know, I, I got to be honest. I, I was not a major sitcom guy, so I'm going to go back in time. I kind of lost my zest for sitcoms. Um, but uh, Sanford and Son, uh, to me, was the, one, one of the great... Was one of the great sitcoms ever. Nothing comes close to Seinfeld, okay? But, um, and I wasn't that big of a cheers guy, to be honest with you. Um, people usually ask, "What was, uh, was Shelley Long better? Was Kirstie Alley better? I thought Kirstie Alley was a beautiful woman. Um, and, and so she passed away, and I have mixed feelings on people that I dislike that pass away, you know, because she turned into such an ultra right wing Luke that I kind of lost my, my, uh, any affection that I had for her. So, um, you know, her passing, I guess, is sad to her family, but uh, I don't know what to say about that. It doesn't, you know.
3: <laughs> One sitcom I'll bring up, which I think is, the, is, if you take Cheers and Seinfeld out, and Sanford's Son is great, but Modern Family, yeah, I mean, 11 years, the writing never faded. Just maybe the most, most well-written sitcom. I don't watch that.
0: Really. <laughs> as you might expect i i don't i don't want watch- fun you don't watch sitcoms you know, uh, and everybody loves Shit's creek and uh yeah. and i go I, I don't know why but sitcoms don't don't move me in, in any uh you know the old sitcoms like back in the day because they were more novel and there was a, it was an era of sitcoms you know and i was younger and i was kind of in like sanford and son and 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 Martin and the Je- and the Jeffersons and you can yeah. go back further than that the Beverly Hillbillies and McHale's Navy and all those sitcoms way back in the day I used to watch Hogan's Heroes and 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 <laughs> I got to be honest with you one of the most underrated sitcoms ever was the Munsters Monsters I love the Munsters man. That was really well written. I'll speak of the
3: monsters. I mean, there's a show on Netflix now called Wednesday, which is just about the character of Wednesday. Oh no, that's the Adam's, Adam's
0: family. family. That's Adam's family, yeah.
3: but similar. It's terrific. It really is. I mean, I watch it with my kids, and we both like it. So,
0: I mean, the dynamic of the monsters with Grandpa and and the beautiful niece who was the, looked at as ugly by the family because she wasn't a monster. Yeah, <laughs> it was brilliant. Yeah,
3: monsters was very. All cool. right,
0: what's the no, question number two?
3: Okay, question number two. Here we go. Um, I, he, the last time you look at the movies, right? You got you and I are both movie guys. Uh, we have similar interests, and we have some very different interests in movies. Um, but the I mean the, the the experience of going to the movies to me is kind of like a lost art. Everything is streaming now. COVID obviously affected it. Um, the last movie I went to see, the last two movies I went to see in the theater were Tenet. And the last movie I saw was the new Top Gun Maverick. That was the last time I was actually in a movie theater. That was the Thursday of Memorial Day weekend of last year. And there's not a movie I'm even interested in going to see in the theater until June 30th, the new Indiana, the final Indiana Jones movie. Um, what's the last movie you saw in the theater? Can you even remember?
0: Yeah, I can't even remember. I haven't been in a movie theater in several years now, for the reasons that that you articulate. But if I go to a movie in a in a uh, a movie theater these days, it's going to have to have like a spectacular element to it, like uh, uh, I don't know, like like Avatar or you know something like something that's dynamic on a screen. Uh, Otherwise, it doesn't really make any sense to me to go to a movie. You know, you just wait it out and it's going to come to you.
3: You bring up Avatar. That, That to me is such a bizarre, like he spent Cameron, the James Cameron director spent like hundreds of millions of dollars over the course of eight to 10 years to make this sequel. I don't know anybody that cares about it. I really don't.
0: No, I don't think anybody. Cares. But see, my point is that the visual aspect of a movie to me is now the only thing that will draw me into a movie theater by word of mouth when people saying, "Oh, it's spectacular on the screen." Otherwise, I just waited out. And there's so much to watch that until you get to a movie. I, mean, I didn't see the second Top Gun until just recently. Yeah. You know, I just waited for it to come to me. And I got to be honest with you. I didn't like it that much. I think you might have liked it more if you saw it in a theater. It is like you say, and you're
3: right, there's a there's a certain allure to a very visual film that lends itself to the big screen. Those are few and far between anymore. I thought it wasn't a great movie, but really cool visuals. Uh the new top Gun.
0: Yeah, but you know, I compare it to the the, the original is such a classic that I, I just can't like. You know, I, I can't get past that part of it.
3: It man. was so similar, too. It really was the same outline as the first one. Even <laughs> yeah, the beach yeah, scene. Was. Instead of volleyball, it's beach football. Like, come on.
0: Yeah, they they, they copied it yeah. and tried to, you know. And, and oh, people loved it, man. Everybody I talked to about it loved it. And I go, I you know, I, I, Topic was so special, the first one. And, and you and it's on all the time still. It, it just, the other one, to me, pale in comparison for a lot of reasons. I totally agree.
3: All right, third question is an NFL question, Mike. If you're starting a franchise today, what's today's date? Tw- December sixth, two thousand and twenty-two. You get to pick one offensive and one defensive current player. You're starting the team. You're taking everything into consideration: how good they are, what their upside is, how old they are now. I need an offensive guy and a defensive guy. Who are you start your team?
0: Uh, with? Uh, I'm taking Mahomes, and uh, it's because he his. Uh, I his whole the way he plays is, is not going to get old uh, until like, you know, like five years from now. I mean, I think the guy's brilliant. I think he's innovative. He makes every throw. He can dance out of the pocket. So I'm going to start with him uh, um, over Josh Allen. Uh, and I'm going Micah Parsons for my defensive player. I mean, just just a dominant, dominant player. We all knew it. And uh, and his age is just, you know, he's dominating the game at his age. So, I'm going Micah.
3: Couldn't possibly agree with you more on Micah Parsons. He's the best defensive player alive on the globe. Uh, it's not even close. And he's so young. He's going to win Rookie of the Year. He's going to win uh, Defensive Player of the Year, Defensive Rookie of the Year. All the accolades. Give it all to him. Offensively, I'm going Joe Burrow. I love Joe Burrow. I love his game, and it lends to a long, long
0: career. Yeah, Joe, You're going Joe Burrow over Pat Mahomes.
3: Yes, Stop absolutely. It. Right now. That's- December 6th, 2022. Absolutely.
0: The most- By the way, You're
3: Burrow's saying- 3-0 against him.
0: The most ridiculous thing I've ever heard.
3: 3-0 against him. Oh, 3-0. oh, he's playing against him?
0: I didn't realize there they, they were one, they, they won 21 other players on the field. Come on, man. Stop it.
3: I love Burrow. He's the be- he's my favorite quarterback in the league. All
0: right. that That's three questions for Mike. And now it is time for my parting shots. Uh, all right let's do two parting shots today. You know, this is kind of a form of Mike Unleashed, but let's let's go uh with uh with two parting shots. First of all, um AJ Brown got the Titans general manager fired today. Yes, it's as simple as that because they made this trade, traded AJ Brown. He comes back and burns their ass. Uh the the owner, the female ownership uh, it says the the general manager John Robinson, uh, see ya. That's a colossal mistake to let that guy go, and and he played it out right in front of right in the face of all our fans. So AJ, uh, you got what you wanted. You kicked their ass. You got the general manager gave up on you, fired. So uh, <laughs> congratulations to, to AJ Brown and and the poor general manager. Uh, you know, um, what can I say? Alrighty, pointing shot number two is a very uh interesting story that people might find gross, but it is a story nonetheless. Um, so in uh in Texas, the wife of an assistant fire chief dumped uh, allegedly fifty pounds of human excrement. If you want to use the street word, that would be human shit in front of uh, an electric texas police department now the reason why i'm saying allegedly they haven't yet done the 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 chemical analysis but uh they're pretty sure that it's uh, human excrement Uh, the woman drove up in an suv towing a trailer got three five gallon buckets uh she was dressed in a hazmat suit and she dumped them in front of the police department so she has some kind of a problem with the police department. And, and I can only say this, that that police department, Darren, is probably on that women's shit list. That's what I would say, first of all. And, and, and I would also add, I would add this, whatever the issue is there, it's certainly raising a stink. <laughs> See what I did there? I can't
3: with this story.
0: Uh, <laughs> all right. So you told
3: me about this story this
0: afternoon that you wanted to talk about it. And I I just I can't, I can't with this story. All right, so so there you are. Good luck with that cleanup, fellas. Uh, out there in Electra, Texas. All right, that uh, that concludes this show. We're gonna come back Thursday. It's a big show on Thursday. You don't want to miss it. The podcast on Thursday will be uh, an interview with Dan Orlovsky, who is the the hottest uh, NFL analyst going right now, and he's a quirky guy. I got some inside information on all his quirks that we're going to talk about on Thursday. Uh, remember the podcast? Download that Bet Rivers app; it's the best. If you're gonna if you're betting football or you're betting anything, you now college basketball season is coming on us. Just download the Bet Rivers app; it's really easy. Live betting, future betting. You can change the bet door in the game, which I do a lot. If I'm bailing out of a game like last night. I probably would have bet the Colorado avalanche. I didn't, but if I saw the way that game was going, you could bail out of a bet on the Colorado avalanche that you bet. Now you're going to, you know, you lose a couple bucks, but it's worth it not losing the whole Monty. That's why that bet rivers app is fantastic. Again, you can follow me on Twitter at uh, MikeMiss25. Also, go to my website, MikeMiss.com, um, and you can email me because I like to get emails. And I'm still, we're still looking for fans to come on the show. So, all you got to do is convince me of your worth and uh, and tell me what you would like to talk about. And uh, it's a segment with the fans. It's it's going to be a lot of fun. So, email me your candidacy at this email address, Mike at And One other thing, and I'm going to be talking about this on Thursday as well. Last week, we had a great book signing for my book, The Adventures of Shima the Sheba. We're going to be doing it again at Barnes & Noble, Neshaminy Mall, uh, in Bucks County up there, lower Bucks County area, in the Neshaminy Mall. I'll be signing, uh, and my dog will be with me, also putting her paw mark on the book. Uh, The book is uh, called The Adventures of Shima the Sheba. We'll be at the Barnes & Noble and Neshaminy Mall from 2 to 4 p.m. So I hope to see everybody there. All right, I think that uh, about wraps it up. Darren, anything
3: else we need to say? Just, you know, the reminders, nice and easy way to listen to the podcast. Just say, hey, Alexa, play the Mike Missinelli podcast, or hey, Siri, play the Mike Missinelli podcast. Either avenue will will automatically start the latest of our podcasts. here,
0: And if you don't have access to that, all you got to do is uh, find a a podcast network like uh, Apple iTunes or Spotify or Amazon or Google. You can go to Google, just type in the Mike Miss podcast. You'll get it. This was the 30th episode. We are proud uh, to to have done 30 episodes since we started this in September. And thanks to all the people out there that are listening. All righty, everybody have a great rest of the night. We'll talk to you Thursday with Dan Orlovsky. Thanks everybody. Bye-bye.
1: Thanks for listening to the Mike Missanelli podcast on the Bet Rivers Network.